In business and life, relationships are everything. Welcome to the People Catalyst Podcast, where we interview top business leaders and learn how they build relationships with their teams, clients, and those that promote and refer them. Here's your host, business trainer and leader of the People Catalyst team, Carla Nelson. Dr. Ernesto Sorori is one of the world's leading consultants on the topic of economic development. He started working in the field of international aid in Africa in 1971 and has since worked in Australia, New Zealand, Canada, the United Kingdom, Latin America, and Asia in projects that promote local entrepreneurship and local self-determination. Dr. Soroli received the Lore de Doctore in Political Sciences from Rome University in 1976 and a PhD in Local Enterprise Facilitation from Murdoch University, Australia in 2004. Dr. Ernesto Soroli received the 2016 International Lifetime Achievement Award for Entrepreneurship Education at the House of the Lords in London. And welcome to the People Catalyst podcast, Ernesto Soroli. Hi, Carla. How are you? Hello. I should have said my dear friend, Ernesto Ceroli. <laughs> and you are rolling all the R's. You said so beautifully, Carla. Oh, Very few people you. say Ernesto Ceroli the way. <laughs> <laughs> well, you are Italian and it sounds so nice that you've got such a beautiful Italian name. So, well, thank you, sir. I appreciate that. Um, and we are so excited to share with our listeners today about the work that you've done so amazingly all across the world, Ernesto. And for those of you who are listening, we'll make sure we also include Ernesto's TED Talk in the link that you can take a look at. It's absolutely hysterical um, and not funny at the same time because we have these challenges uh, that Ernesto's been working tirelessly now for what, 30, 35 years now, Ernesto? Oh, around yeah, the world? yeah, absolutely. Yeah, 35 yes. years at least. Yeah. Wow, that's amazing. Amazing accomplishment. And you've made such a big difference, you and your team in so many different uh, people's lives and helping launch over 50,000 businesses uh, internationally. And that's just an amazing feat. And so can you share with our listeners a little bit about your entrepreneurial background? Because I know your dad was a doctor and you kind of went a little bit different in that regard, but it's actually kind of similar vein, right? Yeah, I... I um... Um, the first one in the seven generations not to be involved um, in the uh, health professions. Uh, uh, my ancestors were pharmacists and doctors. In particular, uh, my grandfather was a surgeon in uh, in the in the first war in the first in the Great War. And um, uh, for those who like Hemingway. When you read the book, Farewell to Arms, uh, the book describes the years when uh, Ernest Hemingway was a, a volunteer uh, driving uh, Red Cross uh, trucks uh, in the Alps of Italy. Well, he must have met my grandfather because my grandfather was a surgeon in that war, exactly in the place described by Ernest Hemingway. Um, I decided not to follow what my ancestors did, but somehow uh, I was drawn 
to psychology and then I applied psychology to the field of entrepreneurship. And I think that this could be of interest to your uh, listeners, Carla, because your listeners are very, very uh, aware of the importance of understanding character. If they are following your work, they understand that not uh, all people are the same. In fact, if you can identify who are the people uh, best suited for uh, specific activities in a team, um, you will set up a much more successful um, uh, company. Mm-hmm. The well, same, yeah. Um, so the same, very much with uh, with me. Um, I never studied business. I studied uh, uh, political sciences in Italy, and then I went to do a, a postgraduate, a doctorate in. Uh, uh, economic development, very much development, uh, local development, and um, uh, economic and social development are very, very important in uh, any program of development. And uh, I discovered that um, um, people uh, are self-motivated. The entrepreneurs are people who wish to improve their lives. Uh, and so there is no need to arrive in a community to tell people what to do. What is important is to um, create a listening, respectful, responsive uh, um, uh, infrastructure, um, what we have, uh, we call an enterprise facilitation program, where you offer free confidential listening um, service to people who have their own ideas of what they would like to do to Mm -hmm. improve their lives and instead of therefore telling them what to do with their lives you simply help them with the how how do you transform your idea your intelligence your natural talent into a way of feeding yourself, feeding your family, creating jobs, uh, and transforming the community by, uh, through economic activities. That's so, awesome. I love it. And I thank you for mentioning our work too, because right, people are different and you have to learn you know, how to put the right people in the right place at the right time doing the right thing. Can you share with us the three individuals uh, that you've identified in any business um, that yeah. are necessary and how you came about figuring that out? Uh, actually, uh, it, ha- uh, it happened um, when I set up my very, very first program of uh, local economic development, I wanted to demonstrate that the intelligence already exists in the community, that you don't have to arrive with the the ideas. Uh, I simply wanted to prove that people have this intrinsic wish to improve themselves. And so the only thing that we had to do was to listen to them. And in a small village uh, where I was invited uh, in Australia, on the coastline of Australia, there was a small community of 10,000 people that was struggling because they had lost uh, their tuna fishing industry uh, due to government regulations. The government had given all the tuna fishermen uh, a couple of years to uh, sell their rights to fish 
or the government would uh, close the entire fishery. And so these fishermen were trying to sell their rights to fish at the possible, at best possible price. And what happened to me was I was um, approached by uh, five uh, of the local, the remaining five fishermen <clears throat> saying, we have this dream about um, making, uh, making money with tuna right now the industry is really uh, very, uh, very poor returns. The only buyer for our tuna is one cannery. They pay 60 cents a kilo and uh, 60 cents a kilo for the best tuna in the world. And, you know, uh, unless we find better markets, uh, we will have to basically give up and uh, we will sell our rights for a pittance and, uh, is a great pity because we it's a loss of uh, lifestyle, not only livelihood, but also lifestyle. And we would like to hang on to our passion for fishing. And they had in mind that um, they maybe they should sell their tuna to Japan. But when they approached the, uh, the um, Department of Fishery, they were told that the Japanese only bought very uh, large tunas, more than 60 pounds, uh, uh, sorry, more than 180 pounds of weight, and they never caught such big tuna. The tuna was smaller. So they were told that the Japanese had no uh, mark, there was no market in Japan for their tuna. So I had these five very demoralized uh, young uh, Australian uh, fishermen, uh, they were pretty uh, broke. And uh, uh, what uh, I realized was that uh, uh, the five of them, the only thing they were passionate about was to catch the product. And uh, I said to them, um, have you ever, ever met somebody who loves to market uh, mm -hmm. fish? And they said, what do you mean? No, we never met. <laughs> when we have fish <laughs> radio, we radio the cannery and the cannery sends the trucks. But we have no idea how to, you know, to find a market for, for our product. And I said to them, would you like to meet uh, somebody who has the passion for marketing? And they said, oh, yes, but is he very expensive? I said, how much money have you got? So they got together a couple of hundred dollars each. We had a thousand dollars. With $1,000, I organized for a, a marketing person, a marketing consultant to come and speak to them. And the marketing consultant said to them, have you ever shown this uh, tuna, your small tuna, to a Japanese who, um, who uh, is in the industry? And they said, not only we never shown that to a Japanese, first of all, the government told us that the Japanese don't want small tuna. And the other thing is that we have never met a Japanese full stop. We have never seen a Japanese. And I said to them, look, there are millions, 180 million Japanese. If you want one, I'm going to find you one. And what I did, I found a chef, a sushi chef from a restaurant in Australia. And we uh, got the money. We convinced this guy to come down to the little village. And when he saw the small tuna, I sliced it. Small, I'm talking about 60 pounds when uh, he got the 60 pound tuna and then he said that this is sushi this is sashimi and they that is my said, favorite tuna too yeah. so and, good. The, and, the, and the fisherman said no 
And the guy said, I beg your pardon, I'm Japanese. <laughs> I'm a chef. I'm telling you that this is sushi. And they said, but we were told that the fish is too small to come to Japan. And he said, we prefer the big one, but because it's so expensive, we eat this every day. So they discovered that the tuna was perfectly okay to go into a restaurant. And they five, uh, the five fishermen spoke to the marketing guy to say, if we give you 140 tons of our tuna for you to sell on a commission basis only, because we don't have money to pay you, but if we give you exclusivity on a commission basis, will you sell it for us? And the marketing guy did some very quick calculation. They were selling it for um, you know, uh, 30 cents a pound, and uh, the Japanese uh, uh, restaurant already wanted to buy for, uh, uh, you know, a $1.80 a pound. And so wow. they said, oh my God, there is already such a margin. The guy said, yes, I will do it. And then the marketing guy organized and took some samples to Japan. We sent five tuna on a jumbo jet from Australia to Tokyo. And uh, they, the Japanese auctioned each tuna. So they discovered that, Oh my God, yes, we want to uh, this tuna in Japan. So what I, did, what I had to do, I had to call the five fishermen to say, listen, okay, you've given a contract to the marketing guy. Now you need to safeguard the contract by having a fantastic CFO who can uh, grab all the, all the contracts and make sure that your finance is uh, in good hands. So we organized for the wife of one of the fishermen had been working in the biggest bank in the community for 13 years. She was a chartered accountant and she became in charge of the contract and we sold 140 tons at auction at $7.50 per pound. Wow. 50 cents. So then imagine the image now. The image is very, very clear. Five people in charge of product, one person in charge of marketing, one person in charge of financial management. That was my first multi-million dollar project because in the first year, they made $5.7 million selling the tuna in Japan. And so what happened is that then from that point on, all the people coming to me, I had 60 clients in 24 months and we set up 27 startups in, uh, and some of them were multi-million dollar startups, always applying the same kind of technique. Who loves the product? Who likes the marketing? who loves financial management. And now 35 years later, we take absolutely no action uh, unless people uh, first realize who they are in the team mm -hmm. and who they need to associate with to be successful. So the first 20 minutes uh, when we speak to an entrepreneur, we listen very carefully. And then we say to them, okay, no business has ever started by one person in the universe. There is no evidence of a uh, single human being that has set up ever a company alone. Not Edison, not Carnegie, not Rothschild, not Ford, not Bill Gates, not Steve Jobs. Nobody was ever alone. So tell me, what do you love to do? Do you love to make it? Do you love to sell it? Or do you, like, do you love to look after the money? And until the people have the introspection and the time to think about who they are, 
And it's not about what they've learned, Carla. It's not about what they studied, it's what they passionately love to do. Until they declare what they passionately love to do, we then tell them, okay, who is better than you at doing beautifully what you have no talent for, what you have no personality for? And so what we do from at the very first conversation we draw a little stupid little drawing, which is a smiley face at the top. That's our client, our customer. And then we say, okay, you are the smiley face at the top. And underneath there are three boxes. One box is called product. One is called marketing. One is called finance. We said to the person, if you could do for the rest of your life, what you love to do, which one you will take care of. And we have people, uh, having absolute revelations. They said, oh my God, I love to produce the product. I'm spending all my time doing accounts and try to do marketing and I hate that. And we said, well, that's the death of the entrepreneurs. Yes, solitude. end up doing three things badly. And you told me that when you told me the story of a woman entrepreneur that you went to visit and she was a formidable uh, M. She was an, a marketing person mm -hmm. who had built the company through sales. And when you met her, she was... Doing the she, books. She was <laughs> and doing, hating every second of it. And she hated it because she could not do what she loved because she had become a kind of self-improvised CEO that she hated doing. And instead of surrounding herself with people that she could delegate, she had surrounded herself with people who she then needed to micromanage to do everything. Mm -hmm. you remember the story you told me? <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I remember looking over going, what's that on your computer? After she took like 15 minutes to uh, tell the story of how they launched their, their business really came out of the fact that she just loved to do marketing. <laughs> so yeah. I, I just take a look over at, a, at the computer and you got QuickBooks up. I'm like, that's not marketing. <laughs> yeah. And uh, uh, we discovered years ago that at the beginning, there is one person who has a uh, dream, a vision, a talent. And for instance, they love to bake cakes. And 12 months later, they have opened up a shop and they hate their lives. Why? Because when they were baking cakes- They're cake, doing everything but besides baking cakes. Exactly. <laughs> because they don't have the time to bake the beautiful cakes any longer. Now they're doing commercial baked products that they hate baking. And they spend all the time, uh, you know, fighting fires because they don't know they did not know about certain taxation. They did not know how to uh, prepare the window of the shop. They did not know how to uh, smile. They actually, some of these people hate customers. They want to be, <laughs> and they became very good in the kitchen because they spent thousands of hours in solitude because they enjoy their own companies. Mm -hmm. They don't like people. Some of the craft people, they don't actually love constantly be dealing with the public yeah so this poor the story of this poor you know uh, baker is that 12 months later she absolutely hated 
they are having a shop, a baking shop, because she could not cope with both making, selling it to the public, and try to do the finances. So we teach something that we call the Trinity of Management, and the Trinity of Management says, only ever doing your business what you love to do, surround yourself with people who are magnificent at doing what you hate doing. Yes. Well, and I love, there's one time you were speaking, Ernesto, and I don't know if it was just us, you know, at lunch or if it were one of the many times I've had the opportunity to hear you speak. But I love the fact you're like, the marketer uh, will, well, the product person will put all the money into the product itself. The marketer will end up spending uh, or spending yeah. $3 or $4 to make it and $3 to sell it. <laughs> And yeah. the financial manager just has to try to get those two to get along. Yeah. And they, you know, you have uh, the amazing thing is that the real product personality, um, he believes that uh, you, he doesn't need any marketing and any finance because as soon as he invents the, the better mousetrap, the world will come to his door on their <laughs> knees to get the mouse traps. What the product people are so arrogant, they believe mm -hmm. that the only thing they have to do is to invent something that is irresistible. Yep. And so what I have to say to them, uh, I remember, uh, <laughs> I remember uh, this, this guy in Latin America, he wanted to set up this uh, uh, business and um, he was, uh, you know, I will produce the product. My brother is very good with finance. And, um, and when I explained to them that nobody knew them, so they needed to have somebody to market the product, take it to the market. He, no, he, that, that, no, no, uh, my brother and I, we will be able to do everything. But you see, he was absolutely discounting the importance of having somebody to tell your story. And every second word, he used the word because the Lord Jesus, because Jesus, because the Lord, the, he was very re religious. And mm -hmm. after an hour of listening to him and him denying the importance of uh, uh, um, telling the story, I stopped him and I said, Jesus Christ, fantastic service five evangelists to tell the story five <laughs> evangelists yeah without the people telling who he was we would have never heard of him mm -hmm. so my point is that it's a, sorry it's a bit profane but oh, no. you've got to have the marketing you've got to have i mean you need to have somebody that tells how wonderful but marketing is two ways. Not only you tell people how wonderful this product is, but you listen to the feedback. And when people say no, the product people get terribly offended, but the marketing people love hearing no, mm -hmm. because no is the beginning of a conversation. As soon as you hear no, you ask, why not? Yeah, <laughs> and of course. People say, I don't, I am lactose intolerant. I cannot. Uh, uh, have cheese made out of cow milk, but I can have cheese made out of goat milk. Ah, would you be interested in our goat cheese? Yes, I would. Fantastic. So then the marketing person comes back to the factory to say, 
where can we get goat cheese? Because I found this one. <laughs> a bunch of people who don't want our cow milk cheese, but they want goat milk. And maybe we can uh, uh, brand, rebrand something that uh, we can buy somewhere else. So for, uh, for marketing people, um, marketing people don't only, don't only represent what you want to sell, but actually give you the feedback that is so important for you to be able to actually uh, understand uh, what, the, what the market wants. Because there is only one judge uh, whether your idea will succeed or fail, and it's the market. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, market. so true. You have to have all three, but if the market says no. <laughs> Forget <laughs> about it. You know, market right. says no. Could be that you are a genius, but you are 100 years before your times and mm-hmm. you are Nikola's uh, Tesla and you died poor mm-hmm. because you had no team. That's a good point. And the fact you were a genius, Nikola's Tesla uh, only made one friend while he was in America and the, and the friend was a poet. And uh, Nikola's Tesla never trusted anybody with his ideas mm. and uh, he died uh, broke and he died uh, and nobody knew about his idea <laughs> and no and nobody knew how fantastic a brain nicholas tesla was so well, i use his example as a warning you know no matter how genius what kind of genius you are if nobody knows what you're doing and whether you if you're not prepared to also listen to what is needed right now uh, you are at risk I love that. So you got to have the great product, fantastic marketing, and the financial management to be able to then make sure you're not spending X to build it and something else to, to market it. Absolutely. That's awesome. Well, can you, as we wrap up, one more question, Ernesto, on the Trinity of Management. You lent a little bit earlier in the podcast of how you came up with that individuals Nobody, not Edison, not Ford, right? None of them um, built a company by themselves. Can you share the actual uh, research you did, which is pretty incredible? Yeah, I I wrote a book about it, and uh, I was very, very curious about these geniuses who knew how to do everything. And when I started to do uh, the research, I discovered that, uh, no, it's, it's an invention of the media. It's not true that those people were geniuses. Uh, Henry Ford was bankrupt twice by age 46. And he was a P, a product person, with no marketing and no finance uh, for the previous two Ford companies. And uh, and the uh, third time, when he went to look for finance, he got an investor who said, I will not invest in you unless you have a CFO uh, that is uh, exceptional. And by the way, I know this person. And if you accept my friend as your CFO, I will invest money in you. And so he was in, in uh, was obliged to have a CFO that Henry Ford would have otherwise never, never, ever accepted. And the, the CFO um, of uh, Henry Ford was James Cousins, who was actually a management genius. And uh, uh, was James Cousin 
who invented the, uh, the absolute need for the $5 the daily wage for the Ford uh, Motor Company employees. And it was James Cousin that basically is the uh, creator of American middle classes because he paid the Ford people so much that they became loyal to the company and they started to buy Ford cars. Yeah, so if you still go to the Motor City, man, everybody drives a Ford there still. <laughs> Absolutely. So my point is uh, uh, in, incredible, fantastic stories. I did uh, the research on the 100 uh, most iconic companies. And I looked at, uh, I, I told you some names, but I looked at uh, uh, U.S. Steel and Mary Kay. And I, I looked at uh, all the early uh, Silicon Valley stories and... Uh, was always two, three, uh, four people working together, and it was never one person. So Love very, it. very important. That, uh, and um, for those who are interested, uh, they can look at. Um, I have a couple of books being published. They are um, available um, uh, on Amazon, and one is Ripple from the Zambezi that talks about my work early years in Africa, and then uh, the other one is How to Start a Company and ignite your life. Uh, and that's where I talk about the research. Excellent. And can you share with us, Ernesto, this event that you have coming on? It's uh, uh, up here July 28th and 29th. I believe it's going to be at 8 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. Yeah, You're going to have three people. Hours, uh, three hours every morning is a, uh, a course online on the Trinity of Management where we are going to uh, uh, do a um, a deep, uh, deeper understanding of um, how you um, can self-assess who you are truly, whether you are the P, the M, the F, or whether you are the, the person who has a passion for creating a team. So whether you are the administrator personality. And then what we are going to do, we are going to give you some exercise to be able to find out right now in your uh, startup or in your company uh, who you have in place and uh, how good are those uh, the people in charge of product marketing and finance. So it's two mornings, uh, the 28th of July, 29th of July from 8 a.m. to lunchtime. Yeah. Excellent. And I'll make sure we put a link in, uh, or my team sure. puts a link in the podcast as well, because we did this special podcast. We wanted to make sure uh, we helped and supported these amazing efforts uh, that you and your team have produced over the past 35 years. And Ernesto, thank you so much for being on the show. Always a pleasure, my friend. Thank you very much, Carla. It was fantastic. Thank you for thinking of us. Absolutely. <laughs> Anytime. I'll be in touch. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye, -bye. Thank you for listening to the People Catalyst podcast. And remember, it's a good life.